Hello, I am Adam Scott, founder of Experience Master Planners Free State, and welcome to this, the Free Thinking Podcast for city makers, brand builders, and storytellers. Today, Amal Hazelton from Moment Factory. From a Super Bowl show to a storytelling airport, he is the pioneer of the programmable place at a super scale. He talks about the festivalization of our cities, how to supercharge the spirit of place, and the importance of the high street as venue as we seek to reignite our post-pandemic cities. So, Amal, thank you very much for joining me. This is very kind of you. Um, I think maybe as a word of introduction, I particularly like what it says on the front of your website. It says, we do it in public. Can you tell me what that means? It's very intriguing. <laughs> yeah, intriguing and a little edgy. Um, it, it raises questions for sure. Uh, to understand what we mean when we say that at Moment Factory that we do it in public, it's really important to, to think back to where we were at as, as designers, uh, not just Moment Factory, but the community, architects, etc., cetera, uh, show designers back in the late 90s and early 2000s. And there was this promise of convergence, this promise that, uh, that with, the, with computer systems and digital, we were starting to be able to do things and program in ways that uh, we hadn't been able to previously. And um, if you look at what Moment Factory is made up of, who who the the talent are, the people are at Moment Factory, um, we've got all the same skill sets as cinema production, all the same skill sets as video game production, um, as uh, TV set design and broadcast, all of the 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 computer systems uh, technologists and all of the motion designers, 150 motion designers creating art. But we've never done it for a 16-9 rectangle. We've never been hired as a digital agency. Every single one of our productions in the first 10 years of our life in the in 2001 to 2010 was really live entertainment, taking digital lighting, digital control systems, and being able to do spectacular emotion creation in a live event where there's a lot of risk and there's a lot of people supporting it. But what we've seen is that all of our exponential growth has been taking these converging technologies from the live entertainment industry and bringing them into the, the, the physical design of our public spaces and our buildings and our urbanism of today. So that bringing these storytelling solutions and making them robust so that you don't need dozens of technicians. And in all of those cases, it is bringing it out into the public sphere where it brings people together. Yes. And that is that is what we do and why we do it in public. Yes. I like that. I mean, bringing people together. I love, I mean, one thing about so much of your work, you know, it's always full of people. And one thing that you and I have laughed about is often images of cities and images by architects and landscape architects often have no people in them. And I think, you know, I remember there was a phrase that you had, which was, I, I'm going to steal your th thunder for a moment, which was, don't <laughs> fuck with my jewel box. Tell me about that sentiment and how I suppose there's a part of that which is suggesting that these jewel boxes don't communicate very well and they don't get better with time. Is that what you're saying? 
I don't think I'm saying exactly that because, um, you know, the tradition of master builder, the architectural profession is is noble and it has delivered noble, amazing spaces, exterior and interior commensurate with uh, our evolution to our ability to master the yeah. noble elements, the stone, the steel, the glass, the marble, etc. And transform those into spaces where we can do things. Now, in the continuum of architecture and urban urban design, landscape architecture, etc., um, and public art, it's been very sculptural. Yes. It has been, I'm going to design something that is iconic and monumental to look at. Yeah. And in its aesthetic, uh, it's built to last the test of time. Yeah. And ideally, it stays the way it is. Hence, the don't mess with my my jewel box yeah. uh, kind of metaphor that, um, you know, there are these these physical objects of our real star architecture, star urbanism design um, in, in too many ways have been uh, designed to be looked at and appreciated um, and not to uh, need change or desire change over time. Yeah. And and one of the things that has been the subject of many conversations in the industry, in the world over the past six months is how can we adapt? How can yeah. we how can we do more in different ways with our spaces? Yeah. And if our spaces are are if it's difficult to program our spaces because yeah. there's the architectural program, but then there's, there's what is the programming that wants to go into it? Yeah. And if we have not opened our architecture to include new noble materials yes that we can now build literally with light and and yes. and what does that mean if we're going to build with light sure there's daylighting and whatnot and great use of natural light but if we can build light into our physical environment exterior and interior yeah. we can actually build architectural forms that remain noble in their shape yeah but can actually do much more in the way that they communicate or enable the community to interface with and interact with their environments. And yeah. so you see yeah. the emergence of media architecture yes. or yes. media urbanism, if you yes. want to call it. I remember you talking to me about the, the, that idea as, as almost like programmable places and that you were talking about the fact that, uh, well, I, I mean, do you think about it then in terms of there's many, many different scenarios that are possible, many different storyboards that are, that, that, that are allowable by this particular platform and then you're giving more opportunity to your clients. Is is that how you create these programmable places? I mean, how many programs will it allow? Well, the, many of the many of these programmable spaces, if we call them that, um, are uh, open canvases by nature. They can they can be different things at different times of the day. They can be they can change and be refreshed and 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 be curated. Yeah. in very creative ways and new ways on a constant basis through the seasons, through the years, etc. And that means getting content, not only content and not only content. Yeah. That's really important. Not only content into the environment, because we don't want now to just perpetuate uh, the creation of environments that push an experience to the population. Yeah. So that's a one-way street. Architecture was a one-way street. We create a space, mm -hmm. and that's what is imposed on the site. We create public art, and that's what you're going to look at for hundreds or if not thousands of years. Um, it's different with media architecture. It, and especially 
if we're going to create spaces that people love to go and so many yes. so many destinations let's call them are dependent on visitors dependent on visitors knowing about that space and deciding to go to it and loving being in it and loving coming back and yes. loving telling all their friends about it yes. that is that is a healthy destination yes, yes, yes. the opposite obviously is an unhealthy destination yes. and what can we build into the architecture and urban spaces of tomorrow that allow us to engage with the public in a more meaningful way. That's a programmable space. Yes. That is what a programmable space is. Nice. And there's two elements to that. Yep. There's yep. what is the infrastructure that's in place yep. that allows people to do things in that space. And the other thing is what are the audiovisual display systems, media architecture that actually delivers an experience uh, and ultimately, ideally, in yes. today's age of I am the creator. I have my mobile device, which really isn't an other thing. It's me and my extension of my body mm. with my my whole mobile digital universe. Yep. I want to be able to to engage with and contribute and participate and yes. and with a with the experience yep. around me. Yes. Not just on my device, but with the world around me and spaces yep. that allow that. Yeah, that's so you're playing. You're playing the city, and we're not just attracted here. We're involved, aren't we? There's a real parallel in understanding where the design process for public spaces is going. Mm -hmm. If you understand where the the digital environment went, yeah. and the digital environment went from Internet 1.0 to 2.0 and 3.0, and what was the evolution there was that it became bidirectional. It wasn't just a source of information, but you could yeah. actually put into it, you could transact within that yeah. environment. Yeah. If you, we look at what happened in terms of experiences, yeah. cinema, eclipsed yeah. TV, yeah. and and uh, and then uh, cinema was eclipsed by video game industry. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I know you and I have talked about that before, yeah. but the why did the video game industry eclipse the cinema industry? Mm -hmm. And most people in the design world, yeah. you know, won't really think about it, but it's because you can play that experience over yeah. and over again yeah. and you're having different outcomes and you're 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 mm. you're contributing in a different way every yeah. time to that environment and that that fungibility yes that that constant newness of me having an influence yeah. is what has made the video game industry much bigger than cinema and yeah. and that will be the same outcome in our architectural spaces yeah. That going from simple spectacle yeah. to being a participative experience yeah. is where we are going. And, and it will have the same economic disruption yes. as video games did on the cinema industry. Oh, that is a very, very good point. And I think particularly this thing about an ever more active audience who are looking for something beyond the event beyond entertainment, beyond the exhibition, they want to escape. And I think, you know, so much of what you're talking about there is that, yeah, that delicious dopamine rush I get because it's curious, it's new. I've never done it before. I want more, which yeah, is, it is, is excites your curiosity. You want to go in, you want to explore it. You want to be a part of it. You want to contribute to it. Yeah. And, and and those are the experiences of tomorrow, not yesterday. Give me give me an example of, of that and how one might wander into such a, a place and find oneself as a as as a participant. 
well, the uh, if you look at something that was on the front of guidebooks for several years um, in the early years of Moment Factory, um, uh, Moment Factory created in 2007, 2008, this digital interactive wall, one of the first in the world. Um, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're quite prevalent now, um, but uh, exterior uh, LED wall that interacted and and its content changed as people came by yeah. that and that was in the heart of the arts and culture district the cap de spectacle in montreal yes and the building that that had this on its facade yes. was the information center so yes. if you wanted to find out about the you know the 25 30 venues the thousands of shows that were happening each year in this district you could go to that information center yeah. and this wall was uh, a wall that was branded as the entertainment district, but it had individual people as they walked by on the sidewalk, the content would follow them. Yes. And as they approached, it would get bigger. And as they opened the door, it would explode in a celebration of their interest having been peaked yeah. to yes. explore the cultural district. Yeah. And so creating this space that nice. that that waves at people, that uh, that peaks their curiosity, inspires them to engage <clears throat> is very powerful tool and yeah. it, there was a good reason that ended up for three or four years was on the cover of guidebooks to montreal yes. with people playing with the wall because yeah. it was it, it was beautiful very photogenic for one thing but it was fun people yeah. loved it Oh, and I think that's one thing I love about you. This, the, the, the joy, the joy to play, the joy to be free, the joy to be, you know, there's, you know, it's embedding magic. And you are the, you know, the kind of wizard within that. And I mean, one of my, my favorite projects you've done must be with the ultimate judo flip of, in some ways, one of the most anxious and sort of worrying places in the world is going through security in an airport. But I right. think one of your most successful projects is is the ultimate judo flip of making yeah. people want to spend more time at security. Can you tell us about that one? Yeah, well, it, many people know um, the really monumental installation that we were part of at LAX Airport in Los Angeles. And that was a very much a dwell time feature to have people enjoying spending time in the retail F&B zone, which generates the majority of the revenues for the airport. But when we were approached by Changi, they said, you know, you didn't do anything with the security pain point at the airport. And it's not just airports that have these. It's train stations, it's transport hubs in general. It's even our grocery stores now during COVID and things like that. There's lineups everywhere. People are spaced out, but boy, is it a drag to wait in line. And Changi, when they approached us, said, we're building a new terminal. It's going to be the most efficient one in the world. Um, but nobody loves efficiency. People appreciate it. It reduces a pain point, but it, it doesn't actually make people love an experience because it's less painful. Uh, we challenge you, Moment Factory, to look at the, the security space and say, what if people regretted going through so fast? What if they wished they could spend just another minute to experience it a little longer? Could you do that, Moment Factory? And that is what we achieved there with the this immersive experience that keeps people entertained and distracted for the two, three, five minutes that they're in security and um, and uh, and offers moments of wonder and surprise yeah. that you definitely would not would would not expect when you're 
suffering through that particular you know pain point in a in it's beautifully done and i think what, what i love about it too is the you know the story of of singapore and how you sort of um you know you're helping us go but behind the scenes of those tower houses and it just it's absolutely delightful and i think for me what i think that touches on is something you've talked to me about before about a spirit of place yes or a spirit of campus and how you're almost taking that kind of innate hidden story and actually being able to sort of draw it out through this magic and i mean that seems to be a theme that comes again and again and again this kind of hidden story is that yeah. is that fair do you think what we've particularly embedded in our process is the question of understanding identity yeah. a place identity and that connects to the spirit of place <clears throat> in the sense that you've got the uh, every place is rich with a story of that geography that destination its history its people its yeah. its cultures languages myths mythologies legends and and all the trappings of culture of every unique civilization around the world understanding that and using that as a lever for placemaking that yes. the storytelling of identity and when we look at the the word you know spirit of place it comes from the genus loci um this the the genius of a location so genius loci is not only the the creativity that goes into designing a space which then becomes location 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 yeah. but it is also the spirit that inhabits it after yeah. it has been designed and delivered to the world so the yes. agora and 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 what people do in that space mm -hmm. and if you look at identity bringing the identity story into something like changi airport um you know no airport is averse to the notion of making money off of some of their digital platforms using it as digital signage having some revenue generation and and there are ways that that can be compatible but at a at a key point such as the uh the, the security gate for changi for example they wanted that to be a exclusively cultural creative platform they did not want to introduce a nuisance element that some advertising, some branding or something like that would then, you know, be a negative in the visitor experience. Yeah, and yeah. so key installations like that can be just used exclusively as a lever to communicate the culture in their case of, of Singapore as a unique uh, architectural and uh, cultural zone. I mean, and it has such a great story to tell, doesn't it? I mean, as a brand of a city, you know, the garden city, you know, it is it, it tells it so beautifully. I mean, for me, that thing you're saying there about the Agora, I find particularly interesting about how, you know, great marketplaces, great market traders, you know, will lead with, you know, you know, bright canopy, loud voice, beautifully laid out kind of market stall. And in many ways, you're supercharging that. So then it makes me wonder if we think about, you know, in a post-pandemic world, particularly noting now, you know, high streets on their uppers, really struggling. You know, what could it be in terms of, I know you spoke about this before, high street as venue, and yeah. rather than this just being about, you know, retail or maybe retail or hospitality, we're saying retail, hospitality, education, culture, um, you know, health care, you know, what might it be and how might this venue and your idea of programmable places be something that could supercharge the high street post pandemic? Right. Well, 
you know, I think everybody's realized during the pandemic that no matter what your business is, no matter what your your strategy is, the missing ingredient is people. And getting people out of their basements, you know, unless you're Netflix and that's where you live with them, but getting people out of their basements and into the places where we live, work, play, and shop. And and being part of that conversation has been very edifying over the past 20 years of bringing people out into public spaces. And that the public spaces, be they a venue like a closed arena or stadium, or be they an agora, uh, a festival place, uh, the plazas and high streets of our world, um, uh, and and parapublic spaces, the eight, the giant atriums and gallerias of of our shopping malls or the the common spaces of our our real estate developments. There's there's two parts of the equation. There is what does the venue have as infrastructure that enables experiences to take place? Yes. So what is your base infrastructure, and in our case, digital infrastructure? because there's all too many parks being designed now in 2020 yeah. that don't have a single electrical plug, yeah. don't have one controllable light bulb in the place, have no fiber optic or data capacity. And so that's a backbone. That's your starting point. You walk into an office, you expect an electrical plug, you expect data, you expect to be able to dim or control the lighting. Yes. That's what public spaces need to offer to be programmable. Then after that, you have the question of what does this venue offer as an experience? Yes. And are there shows, are there interactive experiences that can take place there that offer a base yes. experience yeah, yeah, so yeah. That, that there's always something to see and to do? And there's some tremendous examples of things that have been done in collaboration with cities and developers yeah. around the world in creating these programmable spaces and delivering a benchmark experience that sets yes. the standard and gets people loving that space and coming out to it. Yes, yes. And I like your hand movements there. I mean, it's all, you know, it's coming in from the outside. It's a great, you know, it's a magnet. And I remember you telling me, and maybe this is a good example for for, for the future, because I'm interested in to what extent this will be the roaring 20s from now, you know, after this time <laughs> where we've been spinning our wheels and, you know, stifled indoors for a year, we're going to leap out into the world in a in a new jazz age now. And I know something, I think you're doing it in, it's in Toronto where you're, you know, it is this rich mix of inputs, but also I note that in terms of the genius loci, there's the opportunity for, for co-creation and how this thing can grow and change and get better over time. Can, can you tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about that? Well, there's a number of ways we've been invited to collaborate in Toronto, for example, that, that, that are very interesting. And all of the conversations there revolve around the idea of making uh, some public spaces that would be the next favorite appropriatable spaces, the occupiable spaces of yes. tomorrow. Yes. So that we're, we're building public space to welcome crowds, but we're also designing an experience in the meantime, meantime that could be COVID compliant if it, uh, if it needs to be so. Um, and we'll see how fast we all get over this as a civilization. And, and hopefully there's not a second type of pandemic or something that comes, you know, uh, on the heels of this. But we need to be ready. We need to have spaces that can handle large numbers of people without necessarily creating congestion or, yeah. or, or too close of proximity. And that can be done. And you look at things that we've done in Toronto, for example, in, in a great collaboration with the Toronto Zoo, 
we did um, uh, Foresta lumina. This is an urban zoo and uh, not Foresta lumina, but Terra lumina. And the, the Terra lumina is actually uh, an experience that people can can go to from sundown through till the curfew at, uh, towards midnight. And um, they have an exact departure time. So they uh, arrive and leave in their pods of family units or friends even pre-COVID, because this was launched just before COVID hit, and it shut down for a while, and then it actually scrambled to reopen because it was one of the few things that could safely reopen and offer families something to experience and to do, and used the existing architecture and urbanism and landscape architecture of the park as its canvas, yes. and then offered this, you know, never seen before nighttime experience that people could could then enjoy for a one hour walk and get out, get on their feet, um, get some fresh air and see something that's quite magical, which is how we can transform the city. Let's yeah. call it that at night, especially yeah. um, yes. during the day, you're fairly limited to what can be done with direct view LED. But nighttime, there's all kinds of special effects and video projection and whatnot that can be used to put a pixel of light on any XYZ three dimensional surface, literally yes. now. And that's where we're at as the master builders of 2020. And I'm not saying just Moment Factory. As a community of designers, we can literally put a pixel of content on any architectural surface or even into the airspace, the volumes yes. that we inhabit and bring content into the public realm. And uh, that's magical. Yeah, I, I think I mean, th th I think that is magical. And I think particularly I was just looking at a note here. So I have Amy LeMay joining me next week who's going to be talking about she's the night czar for love yes. and so when you <laughs> speak like that about that opportunity of what happens from you know six at night to six in the morning it strikes me that you know you and her should definitely speak about that but so tell me what would be your advice to her if she's thinking about london and particularly noting that in a post-pandemic world we're going to have you know more staggered society where we're going to take advantage of you know the, the the many hours of the day rather than the nine to five what do you think uh, what would be your advice to her and advice to london Big well as, as as you know i'm an urban planner um uh, in my training and I think one of the key tools for resiliency and especially nighttime economy resiliency of the, the cities of the world, um, we've been slow to deploy best practices in what we could call event urbanism or the festivalization, maybe yeah, some people are calling it of downtowns and, um, you know, Anybody who's uh, seen the economic impact of cultural activities and festivals in our urban economies, they'll know the metrics are amazing. They are drivers of, uh, of GDP and creativity, innovation, of becoming a city where people want to live, where talent wants to move, inward investment, tourism, and, and then internal economy of, of local people enjoying things. Mm. The nighttime economy is critical. The cultural economy is critical. Festival uh, spaces are 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 not just nice to haves, but must haves for the cities of the future. And cities that are are difficult to activate suffer from a great break, a, a break B R A K E, 
yeah. on their economic and cultural development because they do not have public spaces that can be occupied in a meaningful way by long-term or short-term uh, activations. Yes. And so a call to action that I would give to every city looking for shovel-ready projects in 2021 yeah. would be to say, make a next generation festival space that um, that uses some of the best learnings of spaces like the Café de Spectacle in Montreal. Yeah. That ultimately was a $250 million platform yeah. that made downtown Montreal from a place you didn't want your kids to go in 2005, quite literally, yeah. uh, to being um, a space that was voted five years later in 2011 by the Society of American Travel Writers as their favorite space, their favorite destination in North America to write about. Why? Because there was always something beautiful, amazing, educational, um, inspiring to see and to do no matter what night of the year that you went down there. Yeah. And so that means that means big takeovers in the in the key tourist seasons. And that means humble, more modest activities in the in the shoulder seasons. But there's always something special to experience in that downtown. And it transformed the way that space was known in the imagination, not only of Montrealers who said, oh, this space is an expression of our creativity, our music, our art. But also the world saw as, yeah. my God, I love going to Montreal and its arts and culture district, especially. So um, that that $250 million program, yeah. let's call it that, um, that... Uh, um that moment factory contributed to in terms of the the digital network as well as the uh as many of the flagship experiences that launched to different zones but um consists of two things it consists of a of a, a landscaping approach that makes the city easily occupiable digital infrastructure that has all of the electricity fiber optic that you could ever hope for so that a festival, instead of coming into a downtown, wrecking urban furniture and benches, damaging trees, having trouble, uh, you know, putting big concrete bollards in for 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 to take that space over, this space is is designed to connect. And so you can bring a stage in, plug it in in anywhere you want. Then the next thing becomes what is the experience that that digital infrastructure unlocks? And you've eliminated unneeded costs and and damaging costs. So you, most festivals in a downtown need tons of generators, and they're they're guzzling millions of liters of diesel. They are belching out black, you know, exhaust. Just that, eliminating the friction of activation, as I call it, um, making plug and playgrounds yeah. that these these urban spaces we can do something without all this lost production value that it actually then allows our, our community to invest more of their, you know, precious resources into yeah. creating experiences for a nighttime economy, for example, yeah. that that um, that have higher production value because you're not wasting money yeah. on the on zero production value. On them. That's awesome. one thing. Yeah. Then the second part of that equation is the experiences and in that entertainment district profile there was a 15 million dollar investment in a lighting program yeah. and that has one of the world's largest fleets of 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 installed video projectors there's a dozen facades that are fully mapped architectural facades and this creates this gallery urban gallery of video projected surfaces that the uh the downtown business partnership the the Cassidy Spectac partnership can activate 
um, using commissions from you know major productions that Moment Factory might do to set the standard, but then also all kinds of smaller activations and commissions that can bring uh, all kinds of smaller creative outfits into the canvas of the city. Um, and that becomes a vehicle for the city's identity and for its creativity and a living canvas, not just a static architectural object, but a living canvas. Mm -hmm. And that's extremely important. That last point was the, 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 the opportunity for that. I mean, one of your phrases there was that, that living canvas. And I think, I mean, that is so well told, Amal. I mean, that, that example and also the way you dug into that, I particularly like this thought of event urbanism. Mm -hmm. I think that is a hugely powerful idea. And the fact that the way you talk about it, it is both strategic and tactical. You know, you're thinking about it both as a brand in action, you know, understanding its identity, its values, its capabilities. But then what you're also doing is ensuring that environment, whether it's through design and operations, is then the constantly refreshing curation that then makes sense of that infrastructure in the back and then the infrastructure in the back powers this constantly changing, as you say, living canvas. I That's find it. you you so deeply quotable, Amal. I think was it living <laughs> canvas, festivalization, event uh, urbanism, but my favorite is the plug and playground. Now, Amal, I could speak to you all day and I could particularly, I could see that a whole conversation around the history of event urbanism would be a delight, but I think I think I'm going to have to leave it there. And I think for me, you know, so much of what you're saying there about the opportunity of leading with the program and our care for the audience, and then you build from that solid start point, I think is is such a powerful thought for what we're trying to do here. And particularly given this podcast is around how brand builders and city makers and storytellers work together. What is so delightful about conversation with you is you are all these things. And that is why you have a whole system approach to the built environment, which is absolutely inspiring. So, Amal, thank you so much, sir, for your time. Uh, it's a, a true pleasure, Adam. And uh, I look forward to being in touch in the future because I know there's a lot more to say. Very good. There certainly will be. Thank you, sir. Very good. Thank you for listening to the Free Thinking Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Amal. Now, next week, we have Lloyd Lee, managing partner of U Capital and driving force behind Olympia London, their giant £1.3 billion mixed-use cultural hub inspired by the live programme of one of London's great event destinations. He talks about the value of thinking of the development as a dynamic co-authored platform and the critical importance of sharing the pen around as he helps occupiers write their own stories into the project. Do subscribe so you know when the next episodes are and do leave us a comment so we can get better and better. See you soon. Keep safe. Thank you.